community, Palm Sunday. And um, as we've heard, when I was reading about Palm Sunday in preparation for today, and we heard, we've heard, heard, haven't we, just how the crowds came out and they worshipped Jesus on that day. Some people were loud and noisy, waving palm branches, shouting their worship to Jesus. Others were a little bit quieter and lay their cloaks on the ground before the donkey on which Jesus was riding. And I bet there were a few others who just stood back in awe of this Jesus as he came by. And as I thought about this in preparation today, I found myself wondering what what part I would have taken had I been there on that day. Would I have been one of the noisy ones? Probably. Would I have been one of the ones throwing my cloak? And I would like to ask you that question too. What role would you have played had you been there that day? And then it made me think about how we worship him now. And I'd like to ask you the same question as I've asked myself. How do you worship Jesus today? What do you say to that? What does your worship of Jesus look like? Is it just that you come here on a Sunday morning and do it then in this, say, hour and a half? Or is it something you do all week? Is your whole life about worshipping God? Of course, some of those people that day who were worshipping amongst the crowd on Palm Sunday, a few days later were disowning him, denying his kinship, and shouting for his death. And I wonder how deep our love is, and how true is our worship today. One of the things I want to say this morning, one of the main things I want to say, is that worship is all about telling God that we love him. It's not a bolt onto our faith. It's the main thing. Loving God and having a loving relationship with him is the main thing. Richard Forster, in Celebration of Discipline, says, the divine priority is worship first, service second. Remember Martha and Mary in Luke. We see Jesus praised Mary, didn't he, who had chosen to sit quietly at his feet and adore him. She had chosen the right thing over Martha, who was busy. She thought it was all about being busy in service. That was the main thing for her. But actually, when God has our hearts, our hands follow. St. Augustine said, Love God and do what you like. And when the people of Israel turned away from God and started worshipping idols and did other stuff, that's when everything fell apart for them. Worship puts God at the centre of our lives. And if we turn from that, we we end up replacing it with something else at the centre of our lives. Sex, money, ambition, power. We see that all over the Bible. And when the Israelites took time away from God and put other stuff at the centre, they got into a terrible state, didn't they? There was sickness, fighting, hating, splitting. And when they went back to God, things got better. Relationship with God is key to life. Why worship? Why? Why do we do it? We know that God loves us. Sometimes we don't grasp the full extent of what that really means. But generally, we know, generally speaking, we know that the fact that God loves us is central to our faith. In spite of this verse in Matthew, um, you know, where it says that actually loving God is the most important thing, we talk more about God loving us, I think. But actually, this is what God wants from us more than anything else. After all, a one-way love affair isn't much cop. You may not know this, but in this church, we have some very devoted 
Cliff Richard fans. Oh, yes. You know who you are. I could name names. They have spent many years in devotion to Cliff Richard, many years thinking about him, very much money on tickets and memorabilia, time travelling to see him, and they may have met him and they may have swooned. Oh, yes. They may love Cliff. They are devoted to him. But, sorry, girls, I know it's hard. He doesn't love them back. And I don't think that any of them, even the most faithful and devoted fans, would claim that they had a meaningful relationship with Cliff Richard. Not unless they kept it really quiet and the media would really like to know about that. So, knowing God, knowing that God loves us is not enough to bring the richness of relationship that God longs to have with us. He wants us to love him back and to show it. You may point out that recently in this church we spent quite a lot of time looking at how God loves us through the Freedom in Christ series and so on. And it's true that knowing God loves you deep in the soul of your being, unconditionally just as you are, is life-changing and it's really important. But there is more. God longs for us to love him back, to be in a two-way relationship with him. And the Bible, um, the, term, the term in the Bible for expressing love to God is worship. So how do we do it? How do we say, I love you, to God? Of course, in human terms, there are lots of ways of expressing love. Flowers, chocolates, little notes, hugs. But sometimes it's difficult to find just the right way, isn't it? You won't be surprised to know that there's lots of advice on the internet about how you can say, I love you. Oh, there's thousands of ways. I picked this one out. It said, um, say I love you with a chocolate heart and an acre of tropical rainforest in Ecuador. (laughs) It might work for some people, I guess. And actually, there's been a great deal of research on the subject and a lot been written about the best ways to let people know that you love them. And Dr. Gary Chapman, who's an international Christian speaker and writer, has identified five love languages. And if you haven't read his book, I would recommend it to you. Um, And he also also provides a quiz so you can work out which one is you. And you can give it to your partner or your friends and say, this is how the best way to make me feel loved. And it's really really good. So So he lists words of affirmation, physical touch, acts of service, little gifts, time, quality time. And I wonder what, would you, what your love language would be. For me, at the moment, Phil is making me feel very loved indeed because he's filling in all my tax forms. <laughs> oh, that's a real act of service that makes me feel really important and loved in his life. And actually, the good thing is that when I say to him, Phil, you're really good at this, because he is, that works for him too because actually words of affirmation are important to him. So, it's an interesting subject, isn't it? What makes you feel that you're loved? And how do we tell God that we love him? Well, so what are God's love languages? Well, I've whittled it down to about six that I'm going to share with you this morning. I'm sure there are lots more. So, how do we tell God that we love him? Number one. Okay. By singing. Hmm. There are hundreds of verses in the Bible that encourage us to to sing to God. And this one in Psalm 95 is just one of many. 
God is a fan of singing. There are individuals and choirs of angels singing on different occasions throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, and dancing too. We see David going wild with his dancing in praise to God in Samuel. You know, the sun worship on a Sunday morning is not the warm-up. It's not the warm-up act to the teaching. It's the main event. We come together to worship God. You may say, well, I can't sing, so it doesn't, matter. It doesn't mean me. God doesn't want me to sing to him. It's a terrible noise. And maybe you can't sing in tune. But I counted at least seven times in the Psalms where it says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And most of you can do that. I bet there were plenty of you Welsh people yesterday making a joyful noise in front of the telly. And in fact, that reminded me of a very special day that I, went, I was part of in 2000, in May 2000. That, of course, was around the real game. That's football, of course. It was an emotional roller coaster that day. It was the 1st of May 2000 when Ipswich Town met Barnsley in the first division playoff at Wembley. We were there. Tension built as the, as the town went behind early on, and I couldn't watch as Barnsley had the opportunity to, to, to take a 2-0 lead with a penalty. As I covered my eyes, Richard Wright saved it. It was an epic day when Martin Rusa raced away to, to score the winner, ensuring promotion to the Premiership after so many nearly years. I remember clearly how that day, myself and my usually demure and well-behaved friends stood there screaming, just screaming. All the football chants and the songs we'd sung earlier had gone out of the window. We were just screaming. And you know what? I am sure that the noise those we fans made that day was music to the players and the manager. It really made a difference. It lifted the team. It was positive. It blessed them, I'm sure, though they wouldn't use that term. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. We can all do that. Something happens in the heavenly realms when we sing together in worship. During worship, people are healed, restored, come to know Jesus, rise to a, a higher level of relationship with God. It's profound. And Steve, where are you, Steve? is going to come and tell us about an experience he had during corporate worship. Hi there. This happened when I went to uh, Soul Survivor, which um, I was really glad to go because it's obviously a youth thing and I'm a bit old. And uh, I picked up a nickname there of Old Man Steve because I was so ancient compared with anyone else who was there, obviously. Um, but great thing about Soul Survivor, loads and loads of people, 10, 12,000 young people and me, and um, loads of really good stuff to do. But one of the main things about the whole event is the time of corporate worship. We all come together in the biggest tent in Europe, it turned out to be. Now, this tent holds 10 to 12,000 people, and it holds, you know, could hold a number of football pitches. It's that big. Okay, and there was me with the group of people from Burlington that went, and um, I thought it's going to be fantastic. There's some really great worship leaders. There's going to be some really great songs, and um, really looking forward to it. And strangely, for me, I just couldn't get into it. I couldn't get into the 
whole experience of worshipping God and I don't know what was going on and I was kind of thinking, what, what is this? You know, I, I kind of really like this sort of music. It's the sort of music I generally choose to listen to. Um, and I found myself <coughs> analysing loads of things and I was kind of listening to the PA system and I was analysing that and I was listening to the music and I was thinking, mm, that's an interesting way of doing it. And, I, and it turned out I just wasn't allowing myself to actually worship God. I was too busy thinking about loads of other things that were going on. And it actually took me a couple of days, and it was like a you know, five, six-day um, event. It took me a couple of days before I could really let myself go and properly allow myself to be in God's presence and, and to worship him. And when it happened, it was amazing. And for me, all of a sudden, I, I was just able to relax in it and and to kind of be involved in the whole experience of actually worshipping God. And, and, it, and it affected me in a, in a number of different ways. I started crying, and I don't normally cry very often. In fact, I don't normally cry at all. And so that was weird, and I thought, what's going on here? Why am I doing that? And it was because I just completely let myself go. Um, the other thing that happened that was really um, was, was noticeable was all of a sudden, the words that I was singing, and a lot of the songs that I was singing, I'd sung before, and that all of a sudden made a connection with me. It was like those words were written by someone for me to sing to God. It was really making, allowing me to make a connection with God, and those words just, just came alive. And, and the other thing that was, that was quite, quite outstanding was, at, at some points, there was me singing, singing my heart out, and... It was as if I was the only one in that tent. It really felt like it was me and God. And, <clears throat> and on a couple of occasions, I, I was literally surprised as I opened my eyes and I suddenly thought, oh, there's some other people here. And for me, the, the, the fact of just allowing yourself to really concentrate on God, block, on, block all those other things out, really concentrate on him and give him the praise that he deserves. And... He will do amazing things back, and um, and it was an incredible experience for me. I encourage you in worship, wherever you are, to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to lift you to a higher plane, to really enable you to commune with God and experience worship in that way. Um, if you really think about what God has done for you in your life, what He's done for us, you can't help but worship, can you? It kind of bursts out of you. So let's. Let's do lots of singing. Number two, how do we show, tell God that we love him? By talking to him. Do you remember that first love, that time, uh, before, probably before mobiles, when the teenager was stuck in the hall with the phone stuck to their ear? Do you remember that love-struck teenager in the hall? Perhaps it was you. In the cold, they'd be in the hall, talking and talking and talking. And everyone else in the house, I remember, would say, are you still on that phone when you get off that phone, what are you talking about? And of course it was everything and then anything because you were getting to know that person. Oblivious of the passing of time. You talked and talked. And we need to talk to God about all sorts of stuff as we build our relationship with him. What would we talk to him about? Anything and everything. Anything you would talk to your best friend about. Hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties. Tell him the things you're proud of. Tell him the things you're ashamed of. He knows, you know, it's no good thing I won't tell him that. 
Remember to praise him and tell him how great he is. Thank him for all he has done. The Bible says in Psalms 116, I love the Lord because he hears me and answers my prayer because he bends down and listens. Oh, I don't know why that's doing that. <laughs> oh. That's two weeks in a row. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Psalm 116, it says, I love the Lord because he hears me and he answers my prayer because he bends down and listens. Imagine that. The God who made the universe bends down and listens to us. That's something to remember when you're not feeling listened to at home, isn't it? The king of the universe bends down and listens to you. And if you're not sure what to say, you can find examples in the Bible of people who talk to God in all sorts of situations. Uh, I particularly like the one in the second chapter of Daniel, where we find Daniel in praise to God because he's had an answer to prayer. God has told him the meaning of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in this prayer, he's just praising God, telling him how wonderful he is, praise to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes the times and the season. Thanks to you and praise to you, O God of my fathers. I don't know about you, but I'm not always good at that sort of prayer. I'm a bit better at the shopping list kind of prayers. But let's just get in the business of chatting to God, of telling him our business and what we're thinking, what's making us tick. And if you don't feel close to God at the moment, and I know that some of you don't, you may have been a believer for a long time, but the joy and the spark is gone right now. Try talking to God, talking to him anytime about everything Telling him you find it's hard. Telling him you feel it doesn't, it doesn't feel as if he's listening. I was talking to someone only last night who's discovered recently the joy of just being, just unloading on God, just chatting to him, inviting him into the everyday life and not just the bits that are kind of in a God, God slot. And she'd had a particularly bad day and she'd gone for a walk in the park and she'd found such strength from just saying to God, do you know I had a really bad day today? Some people said some really tough stuff to to me today. And she found that rather than carrying that, rather than it wounding her, the stuff that people had said to her that was hurtful, she was able to give it to God. She was a bit like Teflon. She let it slip off her and she gave it to God. And when she went home, she found that she was so much better just because she had been chatting to God about the stuff of her day. So... Let's get talking to him. It's worship. It's telling God that we love him. Okay. Number three, by listening to him. Now, you might say, come on, Heather, you've already talked about prayer. That's the talking and the listening thing, isn't it? But actually, the listening bit, so I don't know about you, but the listening thing for me is the bit I often, usually, miss out. I love this verse in John where it says, the sheep, that's us, listen to his voice. But I have to admit that listening to God is something that's fairly new to me. A couple of years ago, our youth minister, Claire, um, was preaching, and she kept talking about spending time with God and listening to him. She didn't mean singing or praying, which is what I assumed she'd meant. What she meant was, she didn't didn't mean anything I recognised, even though I'd been a Christian for a very long time. 
She kept on saying things like, just spend time with God, chilling with him, just sitting with him, just being with him, just being with God, just hanging out with him. To be honest, I didn't know what she meant. I thought she'd lost the plot. Bless her. But actually, a little while later, I found myself at a retreat centre and had nothing else to do. I fully expected to be bored out of my mind, but I tried it. I sat quietly and I listened to God. And guess what? God spoke. To my amazement, God spoke. And he gave me a verse from Isaiah 43, which says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. And as I've practiced listening, I've discovered that God speaks in many different ways. And I came, that was the beginning of a journey that many of you familiar, are familiar with. I came to give up my job, leave the county council and come here because God spoke to me through his word, through other people, many of you here, through senses and ideas, through worship, as Steve has said. God speaks, God speaks, but listening takes practice. It means finding, finding space and quiet, which I'm not naturally good at at all, but boy, it's worth it. It's life-changing to listen. Of course, our lives are very noisy now, aren't they? Earphones always in the ear, radio, music, sermons, canned music in shops. Finding space to listen is difficult. Maybe you're one of those people whose prayers go something like this. Hi, God, it's me. If he's lucky, we might say, you're great, thanks. Now, if you could just sort this one out for me, get me on this, stop me worrying about that, bless Auntie Elizabeth and Uncle John, and oh, help the, people, help the starving people in Africa, amen. And then rush off to something else. Not taking any time at all to be quiet and listen, and then you say, oh, God never speaks to me. God can't get through, because all the lines are busy. Let's take the trouble, the time, to hear God speaking. I've often wished we could have a letter through the door. Next steps, Hev, take this, one, two, three. Wouldn't that be easy? But it's not like that. God uses instead the Bible to speak to us, life experiences, trials. A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine who has cancer, will tell me that she's heard God speaking more since she was ill than she ever knew possible before. He speaks through other people, through impressions, through ideas, and of course, through his creation. Try listening more and speaking less. You might be surprised what you hear. Okay, how do we tell God that we love him? Number four, by publicly identifying with him. These verses in, Matthew's, in, in Matthew make it clear that we must not hide our faith away. And we know that, don't we? But I want to tell you a little story that might help us think about this. When I was at college, I was young, free and single. I was about 18 or 19 years old. I met a tall, dark, handsome guy at the Christian Union. When he asked me to go for a coffee, I said something like... Okay then, yes please. And I went all sort of wobbly, I remember. I didn't know his name. Well, I'd worked out his name was Phil, but I didn't know any more than that. But when I did meet up with him, I saw his library card on the side, and I noticed it said, Phil Marsden. 
And I thought, honestly, I'd only just met this guy, I honestly thought, as if it was yesterday, I remember, Marsden. Oh, that's not a bad name. <laughs> now, I wasn't looking to change my name, I have to say, because my maiden name was Christian, and I quite liked that. Well, I have to say, I didn't like it when I was younger, because when I was a child and I was Heather Christian, I got so fed up of getting called Onward at school. <laughs> ask me if you don't get that. If you're too young to get that, come and ask me later. But so I wasn't particularly looking to change my name, but I thought Marsden sounded okay. But just think, you know, if when we got married a little while later, um, I'd, said, I'd said to Phil, okay, we're getting married. I'll be totally committed to you, and you be totally committed to me. It'll be great, but actually I'll stay as Heather Christian and we won't tell anyone. Okay? So it'll be our secret. We'll be married. We will be married. Of course, it'll be real, but we won't tell anyone. I'll be Heather Christian. Okay? Well, what kind of love would that be? I know it's about publicly identifying with him. I was pleased to become Heather Marsden. You know, it was part of, my, a part of my public identification of my marriage. But, you know, sometimes we do pretend we don't know Jesus in public, I think. We tell him we love him in church or in private prayer, but that's not enough. True love of God shows itself when we're not ashamed, when we choose publicly to be identified with Jesus and with our faith. In Mark 8... Jesus said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's not be ashamed. To help us in this, Jesus gave us two powerful symbols that help us to publicly identify with him. This communion, and of course this week we have Monday Thursday when we remember the Last Supper and how Jesus, on the night he was betrayed by a close friend, took the bread and wine and set an example for us to follow in remembrance of him. In taking communion, we publicly identify with our faith and with our commitment to Christ. Secondly, this baptism. Letitia and Felicia were a great example to us last week when they spoke when they spoke publicly about their commitment to Jesus and their willingness to follow him. And they came up here and were baptised in front of you all. But there are still many people here who haven't yet been baptised. You may feel too shy, too embarrassed. You might, might think, I can't be baptised because I can't, I can't speak in front of three or four hundred people. Let me tell you, you don't need to. You don't need to. I'll read your testimony if you like. Someone else will. That's not part of the deal. It's about the water speaks for itself, symbolising dying with Christ and being raised with him. Or maybe you think being baptised is about becoming a member of the church and you've been a member for years. Well, you're wrong. We had a call this week from someone who wants to be baptised. who has been here as a member for a long time. She's been a Christian for a very long time. But she's come to a point now where she wants to publicly come and do something outrageous in front of hundreds of people, get dunked in a a bath of water to, to show that she loves Jesus. So are you willing to do something outrageous? Are you willing to own up? Are you willing to be publicly identified with Jesus? After all, Jesus said it's very plain. Believe 
and be baptised. Okay, we're on to number five. Number five, how do we tell God that we love him? How do we worship him? By giving to him. We show God we love him. We worship him by giving. Here in this verse in Corinthians, Paul underlines the importance of giving and goes on to say in the next verse that our sincerity in this is a test. How much we are willing to give is a barometer of our love for God. Sacrifice, giving, is at the heart of, wor- at heart of loving, at the heart of worship. Giving is the essence of love. You could spell love, G-I-V-E. People who love God have a generous lifestyle. You can, live, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Romans 12 says, Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. It's about living for others because we love God. It's not supposed to be pleasant. It's supposed to be cost, to cost you. It's supposed to be a sacrifice. And actually, our new church centre is an example of giving in worship. It represents much worship, I think. I'm sure that many of you have given sacrificially in terms of money and time, commitment, prayer and resources to make it possible. It's worship, and God delights in us worshipping him by giving our lives, ourselves, our money, our time. And some of the small groups are getting to grips with this um, through the community service projects, getting involved with making a difference in people's lives by giving energy and time and commitment. It's another example of corporate worship. How do we tell God we love him? Number seven, six, six is the most important. We've talked a lot about ways to worship God, but the highest form of worship, the most important form of worship, is when we give our lives to him. When we become a Christian for the first time. This is the theme underlying all that I've already said. A desire to know him more, to be more like him, to give our lives to him. Here in Matthew we read that it is when our deepest desire is to know God that we find him. I've been thinking a lot about this recently, and you know what I think? Sometimes we settle for second best, and we become complacent. Some of you will know that a few weeks ago, not long ago, I had quite a nasty car accident, and my car was written off. I don't have a car of my own at the moment, but God protected me, I'm fine, and that's a story for another day. But the insurance company lent me a sporty little number for a few days, it's silver, it's a coupe, it's low slung, it's, it's flashy, it's got all sorts of spoilers and stuff on it. I feel I should wear my, my shades when I get in it and my high heels. You know, it's a certain sort of image. It looks really flash. I was telling my daughter Grace about it and she said, oh, mum, I bet it's fast. Do you know what? It isn't. It's, it's a real letdown. It's not what it appears. I put my foot down and nothing happens. But it looks great. Sometimes we can be Christians like that. We can be Christians like that. We look right. 
We're doing all the right things. We come to church, we're committed, we're involved in everything. We, we do come to all the groups, all the prayer meetings. We might be in the worship band. We're on the fundraising committee. We're running women's fellowship. We're doing all this stuff and it's great. I'm not knocking it. It's good stuff. But we look right. But what's our relationship with God like? What's it like under the bonnet? What's it like under your bonnet? What's really there? I wonder. I suppose you'd know by um, how you worship God. How do you worship God? Do you sing or make a joyful noise to him? What happens when you have an opportunity to own up to knowing Jesus? Do you do it? How much time are you spending both talking to God and listening to him? Never mind the exterior. What's under your bonnet? That's another question for you this morning that I hope you'll take into the week. If we want to be a Christian, to love God, we have to come to a point at which we say yes to Jesus. Yes, I'm going to truly worship you by giving you my life. And Joyce, Joyce Easter is going to come and tell us a story about someone close to her who's decided to do that just recently. Thank you, Joyce. Some of you will know my daughter, my youngest daughter, Ruth, lives in America. She has three of her children out there. One of them lives, Curtis, her son, lives fairly close to her. He's married and he has three small children. They go to a church together. Um, They're very happy there, and I can assure you, this church is very much like Burlington. They made me very welcome. Now, Curtis is now a regular worshipper, but it wasn't always so. His attendance at church, I believe, was very erratic, if at all. But when he came to this church, he stayed. And one day last year, my daughter talked to him and asked him about committing his life to Christ. But the answer he got, she got, was rather negative. When my husband died, I found amongst his possessions three long boxes full of his sermons. As I had no room to keep them when I moved to a very much smaller place, my eldest girl, Karen, said she would like them. And I think, like many things, they went up in the loft. But just recently, she brought them down and she decided she would catalogue them, put them on computer or whatever it is you do with these things. And she came across the sermon that my husband had preached on the Sunday that my Ruth, our Ruth, was baptised. 
And when Ruth was visiting us for a few days at the beginning of the year, Karen said, before you go back, Ruth, just read this. I think you'll be interested. So Ruth read it. And I suppose she was gobsmacked. And she said to Ruth, please let me take it. I want to show this to Curtis. And she took it home. And when there was an opportune moment, she gave it to Curtis. Curtis found a time when he could be by himself and quiet. And he read through this sermon, which was preached 40 years ago. And he fell down on his knees and he gave himself to Christ. Wasn't this marvellous? He went to see the minister and he told him all about it. And he said, I want to be baptised. And in probably three hours' time, a little bit longer or shorter, according to the time, Curtis is going to be baptised. Praise the Lord. Praise God, hey? Praise God. Now... I don't know what you've thought to what I've said this morning. I hope some of it's found, been helpful. I hope it's hit the spot for you, made you think. But it may be for some of you that it all seems a bit, or oh, a bit of a mystery, a bit of a blur. It doesn't really make sense. Well, you know, it's a bit like it may be that that step is missing, the step that Curtis has made, the step that Curtis made and is representing in his baptism today. Because, you know, if you haven't made that step, if you haven't actually accepted Jesus as your saviour, a lot of what I've said this morning will be kind of out of reach. It's a bit like trying to swim underwater without goggles on. You know, if you've ever done that, if you've tried to see underwater without goggles, it's all a blur. You can see shapes, but they don't really, they're not very meaningful. You can't really understand what's going on fully, but you're kind of there. But when you put the goggles on, Suddenly, things make sense. There's clarity. You can work out what's happening. Well, it's a bit like that when you accept Jesus. It's a bit like that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Suddenly, you understand things that were unfathomable to you before. I don't mean that you suddenly understand everything and you've got it all sorted, obviously, because we've all got a long way to go. But I just thought I'd mention that. Have you put your goggles on? Have you made that commitment that makes all the difference? The one that is the pinnacle of worship to God when we give our lives to him.